Well, please turn this morning in your Bibles to the Psalm 134. So we're in the Psalm 134. It is a, it's a very brief psalm. It's one of these songs of degrees. In fact, it's the last one of this salt within a psalter. And the Word of God says, Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. And lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And the Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. Amen. May God indeed bless his word to your hearts today. The subject of, of worship has been brought to my attention again a number of ways in, in recent months. It initially came through a request from the, uh, the editor of the Vision magazine in, in Northern Ireland who wrote and asked me would I, would I write a letter or write a, an article sorry, on the subject of wanted worshippers. Uh, it's for the youth pages in the magazine. I think they, uh, they're running a theme of various things the church wants, like a wanted poster. You can imagine the uh, the criminal in the out, in the outback, and they're uh, they're wanting these men. So wanted was the title. Wanted worshippers, uh, and that of course got me thinking, at least in part, that worshippers are not hard to find, because everybody is in essence a worshipper. When you understand worship to be that sense of of putting one one thing above all else. And giving your, your life and your affections to that one thing, then in a real sense we're all worshippers. We understand from Romans chapter 1 that the eternal God is, is made visible, if you like, through the, uh, the created world. The invisible things uh, are seen, understood, God's eternal power and Godhead. And so yes, in a sense all men know there is a divine creator. They understand the power of God, but they suppress that truth in ungodliness. But that does not make them uh, not worshippers. They worship other things instead. And we'll see more of that in the message this morning, uh, Lord willing. So there are uh, within every person a desire to worship something. And the question is not so much worshipping, but what do you worship? But that was only one aspect of the burden that came upon my heart in recent times. Another one is an increasing awareness that uh, in our present day, the issue of worship is becoming a defining issue regarding church life. One of the pressures we're facing as a denomination is in the area of, of public worship. And again, I appreciate that worship is more than uh, meeting together in God's house to, to sing and to pray and to be around the word. There's more to worship than that. Worship's our entire life. We give our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. But in that more narrow sense of public worship, it's becoming a defining issue. In our churches, our, our younger people are being exposed to, to different forms of worship. We now have a, a greater awareness of what happens in the outside world through the, through the internet and other mediums. And there's a, an awareness of what can be an offer for God's people in God's house. And thus we need to be more clear than ever as to what we understand worship to be. It was not an issue under, under attack at a, at a former time, but now it is. And we must be aware of, of what is the essence of true worship. It has been a subject of debate. We've seen the last, oh, it's hard to define, maybe the last 30 years, certainly 25 years, has been an increasing awareness of Reformed doctrine. And a, a group often known as the New Calvinists, uh, there has been, and um, we commend uh, the, the work of God in the sense of, of an awareness of the doctrines of grace. Things that we knew as, re, as reformed truth. And yet with it, 
There has been a move away from what was viewed as being conservative worship of the name of God. Of course, debates on worship are not new. You think of the times of the Reformation and the transfer from the liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church uh, to Calvin's psalm singing in Geneva and all of the changes that would have involved. Oh yes, there would have been debates throughout the centuries. But we are seeing new things today. New things in terms of the contemporary music phenomena. Again, if I was in, in Malvern right now, I'd probably pause and, and ask you all a question. I don't know if you'll answer it or not, but I'll ask you the question anyway. You can see how you think. But I wonder if you were to stop and, and think, well, what marks modern contemporary worship today? What are the features of it? I wonder what you may say. If you begin to define it, well, if, you want, if someone's put a hand up and shout out, you can do that at this time. If you'd rather not, I'll give you my answers. What are the things that, that define modern worship today? Well, it seems to be that there is a desire to appeal to the senses of those who attend. Sight, and the sound, all of those things. There seems to be a desire that the worship will appeal to the senses of those who are attending that worship. There's an emphasis on the visual display. I spent some time a number of weeks ago now, and I, I just spent 30 minutes watching the, uh, the most popular modern worship, uh, worship leaders, as they'll call themselves. Uh, and I watched the uh, things on, on YouTube and began to, to consider those things. And there was definitely an emphasis on the, on the visual display, the backdrops, the colored lighting. The music leaders are often identified or dressed in a way that the young people can identify with. The music is appealing to modern tastes. Uh, again, it's, it's very much the same genre of, of, the, of the modern popular music industry. And they even got people who are, uh, again, worshipping under the, the guise of, of reformed rap or grunge music. All these various things that are, that are bringing in the worship of the, or the, the songs and the, uh, and the style of the world into the worship of the church. The aim seems to be to worship God in a manner that is pleasing to the worshipper, entertaining them as they come to worship God. The soundness and the quality of that worship is then determined by the feelings of those who attend. And thus you'll get people saying it felt good to be in worship today. Again, I'm not speaking from a a position of of an outsider in these things. I spent a number of, of years in a in university in Belfast and involved in the in the wider evangelical scene and certainly the worship in those days was was contemporary and of course things have moved even further from then. And so what uh, was used to determine the quality of the of the meeting was well it felt good to be in the worship of God today. Now I'm not denying please I'm not denying that there's a great spectrum in the modern church. I'm simply saying that the most popular forms are marked by these things. And moreover, let's be clear, we should admit that these things contain an element of soundness. While these are marks of modern worship, there there is an element of truth in these things. We are not to deliberately make worship distasteful to the senses. It's not a role to make it unpleasant. God has given us music and melody in a way that that should appeal to our senses. And what's more, we should not make worship as uncomfortable as possible. 
You are sitting in a pew. Now, right now you may say it's not very comfortable, but it's a, it's a pew. You're, you're not standing for an hour. We're not deliberately trying to make it an unpleasant experience. You know, we're, we haven't the walls painted in black. These things are, are not deliberately uh, meant to be aesthetically unpleasing. And so there is a sense. Well, yes, we understand that God has given us our senses, our ears to, to hear pleasant music, and our, and our visuals are the, they're not meant to be unpleasant. I also believe firmly that good, sound, biblical worship will stir the emotions of the worshipper. We're not to cut our hearts out when it comes to worshipping God. In fact, I would suggest that we're not truly worshipping unless our hearts are responding emotionally. And as we praise God, there ought to be a good feeling of positive uh, devotion towards the Lord. And so, when you take these elements... Um, people say, well, therefore, that's what we're doing in the modern church today. We must be aware of these things. We shouldn't cut ourselves off from the realities that are before us. Yet, things are different now than they were a few decades ago. A few decades ago, and uh, again, there are those of us who are closer to those decades than others, uh, but a few decades ago, there wasn't so much time spent in being entertained. And perhaps I'm going back before the, uh, the world wars, uh, certainly the 1950s, but from the 1960s on there has been an increase in the entertainment industry. Again, this is a, a fact socially that cannot be denied. And how are people entertained? Well, they're entertained by others performing in front of them. How do people relax nowadays? They, they go somewhere to be entertained. And thus people perform in front of them, be it in sport on television, in the movies, the theatre, uh, the music, a uh, concert, whatever it might be, people are entertained by others performing in front of them. Again, even in the modern realm of internet, that is still the case. People spend countless hours, days, weeks, years on YouTube. Um, what are they watching there? They're watching others perform in front of them. And that's how they're being relaxing, how they're entertained at this time. Again, all of that is not necessarily sinful. Much of it is, but not all of it. And thus, we see that in the modern church, this entertainment culture has drifted in. People, if they are to respond positively to worship, they must be entertained. That's become the standard. Well, how are we going to know what good worship is? Well, how do people feel about it? If we're going to use feelings as the standard, how do people feel about the worship? And if they are to feel positively about it, then they must be entertained. If they're not being entertained, then they will not respond positively, and therefore it is not good worship in their mind. And as you see how this is, this is coming to the church. The entertainment culture has come into the church. People presume that they are to be entertained, they are to therefore respond positively to that, and that becomes the measure of what is good worship. And herein lies the problem. Worship is now governed by the response of the worshipper. That response to be positive must be entertaining. And that is the only way that worship can be popular today. So what are we to do with these things? Are we to receive these things as being uh, proper and correct? Or are we challenge the present culture in which we find ourselves in? Are we, are we to hold fast to what we have? Let me be very clear. I do not agree with the idea and the notion that old is good and new is bad. 
That is to bury your head in the sand and not to recognize that much that is old is bad and some that is new is good. This is not a matter of generational preferences. One of the things that are, uh, that are often put to me when I talk to young people in the church or even my own family and we're discussing these things, they will say to me, you're just old. Uh, and therefore, you don't, uh, you don't understand what we like today. You know, when you were young, <laughs> how dare they, but when you were young, the, the, you used to like this. And now you're old, you still like that, but we've moved on. We like this now. It's not a matter of generational preferences and tastes. There are clear principles in the Word of God that can be used to enable us to give clear standards as to what we believe our worship should be like in our churches. To do this, I thought we'd come to this particular psalm, the Psalm 134. As I mentioned, it is the, the climactic psalm of the Song of Degrees. The theme is clearly worship. Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. It comes at the end of the Songs of Degrees, but also introduces the rest of the Psalter. In Psalm 135, and verse 1 and 2, again, they repeat the theme of Psalm 134. So whilst the Song of Degrees has come to an end, it's introducing the rest of the Psalter, which, again, really does have the dominant theme of the worship of God's name. The Songs of Degrees, I'm sure you're aware, were songs likely sang uh, by the pilgrims as they uh, ascended to worship God at the three feasts in Jerusalem through the year. They would come and they would sing. And it seems to be that as they were leaving, they were singing this parting word of encouragement to the Levites. All ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. And the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they were the tribe that was responsible to stand in the Lord's house. They had the task of offering the sacrifices and presenting the incense on the altar. And the people here are encouraging them to be faithful. Oh, you Levites, be faithful in your task of worshipping God. And then in return, verse 3 seems to be, the Levites then responding and blessing the people. The Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. Now, how are we to relate to this? We are not, again, walking to earthly Jerusalem. We are not on our way in that pilgrimage sense. Furthermore, we are not living in the day of Old Testament ceremonies. And the Levites are no longer those who are appointed to worship God. So thus the application must be, must be very clear, that we are all priests unto God. It comes back to the Reformation principle of the, of the priesthood of all believers. First uh, Peter 2. We're all we're a kingdom of priests unto God. And therefore, what we see in this portion of Scripture governs how we, in turn, come to worship the Lord in our day. I just want to set some things before you in this psalm that I do believe will help us to determine how we worship in our churches at this time. Note, first of all, the people who worship. I've mentioned the Levites are the men here in view. They are called the servants of the Lord. Again, our time is... Is moving on. I want to, to summarize these things very quickly. But the Levites were those who were chosen of God. It was the tribe of Levi. Not one of the other tribes, not Reuben or Judah, but Levi. They were the ones who were chosen of God and in turn were set apart by God, cleansed by God, 
clothed by the Lord. They had, the, they had their garments given to them. They had the ceremonies under which they were to be cleansed and set apart for the service of God. They were chosen of God. In turn, they were commanded by God. They were not at liberty to worship as they chose. You think of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. What did they do? Well, they offered strange fire, which the Lord had not commanded. And they took to themselves the liberty of offering incense that was not of God. And they paid with the price of their lives. These are the Levites. These are the servants of the Lord, chosen of God, commanded of the Lord, consecrated, cleansed, and clothed by the Lord. And they are the chosen servants who therefore stand before the Lord. It's a wonderful word picture here in the, in the Hebrew. You look what it says in verse, verse 1. Which by night stand in the house of the Lord. There is a picture of this in the construction of the tabernacle. I want you to turn back to Exodus chapter 27. Uh, I want to share this with you. It's an interesting, it's an interesting word picture. Exodus 27. I remember, oh, 2006 it is now in, in college uh, listening to, to Dr. John Douglas, uh, again, expounding this portion of Scripture and pointing out this word picture. He, he loved the Hebrew language, and he was always glad to point these pictures out to us. And you have in, in Exodus 27 the instructions for the building of the court. Again, perhaps you remember the tabernacle had these, uh, these various parts. There was a tabernacle proper, the holy place, the holy of holies. And then outside that, there was a court surrounded by the, uh, the curtains and the, uh, and the pillars. And you have there the hangings and the pillars, sorry, in verse number, and verse number 9. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle. And then verse 10 says, And the twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And the reference here to these pillars is interesting. Of course, it's a, it's a noun, it's a naming word. And it is the, the noun of the verb form to stand. The one that's used in, in Psalm 134. There they are standing, and here the pillars are standing. Again, that's what we talk about. You may talk about a stand as a noun. And what does a stand do? A stand stands. And so a pillar, a pillar stood. And a pillar was a stand. And upon that pillar, upon that stand, were, were the hangings hung, whereby the court was then surrounded with these pillars and the hangings containing the court, therefore. Note the pillars, they were put into the sockets of brass, connecting, of course, to the brazen altar. Again, you need to understand that, uh, that as a, an Old Testament believer, as a, as a Hebrew, you would come to the tabernacle. And you would come to, to hear the word of God and to, to offer your sacrifice unto God. And as you were there, you would, you would contemplate the pillars. And you would know that they're the stands. And perhaps you would think about the, uh, the context of worship, Psalm 100 or Psalm 134. And those pillars, they were erected onto the brass, indicating they stood on the ground of atonement. And the brazen altar was the place of, of, the, of the brass, upon which the, the fire of God consumed the sacrifice and not the offerer. And thus the people of God, they were saved, they were spared the judgment of God because the sacrifice consumed the offering and the pillar stands in brass. And the pillar stands covered in linen, the linen that is the righteousness of the saints, Christ's righteousness. Now we can't go into all the details uh, at this time, but in simple terms, 
The standing in the presence of God is a standing in grace. Chosen of God. Cleansed by God. Consecrated under God's service. Under the command of God. But in all these things, standing because of the grace of God and the gospel. Our only standing in worship is in grace. And the boldness. The boldness of some in the presence of God in modern worship suggests that this has been forgotten. To watch some worship God in the form of rock concert to me indicates that they've forgotten they stand before God only because of gospel grace. We're coming before the holiness of God. The God who alone has the right to demand who worships him and how they worship him and what they do in that worship. You think of Psalm 130 in verse number 4 or verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? If God treated us as our sins deserve, we could never stand in his presence. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. The reminder of who we are in God's presence is a tremendous guard upon us taking liberties as to how we choose to worship the Lord. We remember that he is our God. We are those who are called and chosen and cleansed. We stand in gospel truth. The second thing to note is the purpose of worship. It is to bless the Lord. It says, Behold, bless ye the Lord. Now you could rightly say, Is it not God that blesses us? Verse number three, The Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. And thus it's a, it's a challenging thing. Well, what is this matter of, of, uh, of the blessing of God? Well, the word is used in different ways uh, depending on who is performing the task. Who is doing the blessing? In its root form, the word speaks of being happy. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1. It has a sense of of happiness, but not happiness in in terms of earthly situation, but happiness in our standing in Christ. Yet to bless God is clearly a term that is used for worship. Turn, Turn back to Psalm 34, for example. Just note some of these, Psalm 34. And the verse number one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's one of these Hebrew parallel verses. The first part is explained also by the second part. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually, i.e. at all times, be in my mouth. Therefore, to bless the Lord is to exalt and to praise his name. You've also got that in Psalm 96. Turn over to Psalm 96. And the verse number one. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. And here again you have a number of terms that are being used uh, synonymously. Singing to the Lord. Blessing his name. Showing forth his salvation. These terms are all describing the same event. The event of public worship. Song. Blessing his name. Showing forth his salvation. And so... When God blesses us, 
we indeed are, are pleased. And when we bless God, it is unto his pleasure. He delights in the praise of his people. And thus we bless him by making him known. We bless him by making much of God's name. By showing forth his salvation. Our hearts delight in God. And we bless God from our words. You see the contrast between blessing and cursing in James chapter 3. Don't turn to it. Let's read to you very quickly. Therefore bless we God. Therewith bless we God even the Father. And therewith curse we men. Which are made after the similitude of God. So you've got the contrast between blessing and cursing. If to curse is to speak ill and to wish ill. To bless is to speak well and to desire well. And thus we bless God by announcing well about him and by desiring well for him. These are all included in this idea of, of blessing God. But the application therefore is very, very plain. Our worship should never be primarily about our pleasure and our entertainment. The focus of our worship must be announcing God to others. Singing and speaking well of God. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. And one of the things you will see if you're to, to spend the time going to some of these, uh, these modern so-called worship services. Is that the center of the worship seems to be the worship band, the worship leader. And people are bowing down before the worship leader. Now I can't judge the heart of those who are there. Nor I judge the heart of those who are seeking to worship and to lead those worship times. But it looks that way. It feels that way. It feels it's not so much about God. This is about the event and the people who are there. That's the purpose of worship. It is to bless the Lord. Note the posture in our worship. Lift up your hands, verse number 2, in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Lift up your hands. And here it would seem that there is a very strong proof text for what is taking place in these modern worship services and events. Again, I watched one such event and there were probably several thousand people and those with their hands down could be numbered in one hand. They all had their, their hands up and they were all, as it were, professing to worship God. The usual pattern is this. There is repeating a particular line or a beat. The people close their eyes and they lift up their hands, usually in a professed expression of adoration of the Lord. Again, it is not my place to question or judge their hearts. They will answer to God for what is going on in their hearts at that time. But the lifting up hands in the Bible... It's a posture that notes humility and prayer more than adoration and praise. Now, I'm not saying they're divided. I don't want to separate the two. But when you study the scriptures and see the reference to the lifting of hands, it is very much associated with humility and dependence upon the Lord and the offering of petitions. Look at the Psalm 141. Psalm 141, the verse number 2. 
Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And again, there you have another example of these parallels. Prayer and the lifting up of my hands. You've got it again in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, in the verse number 6, it says this, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And there you see the humility. There's a bowing of the head associated with the lifting up of the hands. There, there's, there's not a proud arrogance here. There is a deep humility in the presence of God. And you see it also finally in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the men are told to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So prayer, again, is the attitude whereby there is the lifting up of the hands. Now, we get into discussion as to what's acceptable regarding posture. Do we disallow people to lift their hand above their waist? If they do that, do we write them off as being a, a raving charismatic? They ought not to be here. Well, both Old and New Testament, there is the posture of lifting up hands. Let's be careful that we don't become wiser than the Scriptures. And we see a misuse of a posture whereby we then disallow the posture in those who are sincere. In all external postures, the external posture must be a reflection of the heart. We will often say to you, please bow your heads in prayer. But you may bow your head without your heart being engaged. And the concern is this, that in the posture of the lifting up of the hands, the posture is not a reflection of the heart. And sadly, sometimes it can be, look at me, I'm in ecstatic worship right now. Look at what I'm doing. My hands are lifted higher than yours. Therefore, I'm in a higher place in the worship of God. But the posture must be a reflection of the right attitude. And the attitude is that of humble confession and absolute dependence upon the Lord. And therefore, when we're assessing our worship, we are reminding ourselves that we worship as those who are saved by grace. Here in God's presence, because of sovereign grace, we remind ourselves that the object of our worship is God and not ourselves. The outcome of our worship is His pleasure, not our pleasure. It's about God and not ourselves. The posture of our worship indicates that of humility and not arrogance. But then note also the persistence in our worship. They are to stand by night. Now this actually refers back to, to 1 Chronicles chapter 9 and the verse number 33 where it says this, And these are the singers, chief of the fathers of Levites, who remained in the chambers were free, for they were employed in that work day and night. And it was the task of the Levites to be employed in the worship of God day and night. And so that's what you see here is that uh, these Levites were keeping up their responsibilities as of the end of God. I think we could think of worship here as something they did as they were commanded to do. We are to worship God even if we don't feel like it. 
And again, if our feelings are going to govern our worship, what happens in those times when we don't feel like it? And sadly, I've seen in the, in, the, in the modern contemporary worship scene that those who are advocating that and delighting in that, they have un, incredibly unstable Christian lives. They know the heights of ecstasy in one meeting and in the depth of despair. Because their worship is based upon their emotions more than upon truth. And there's an absence of truth in so much that it was under the line of contemporary Christian music. There is no substance to it at all. It, it means nothing. You say, well, that, that's not right. They're, they're talking about the Lord's name. But there's no substance. They talk about the Lord's name. They, they use words without explaining the words, without any doctrinal substance. And thus, their emotions are heightened, but their emotions are not heightened in the right way. Emotions must be warmed in the light of truth. That's how we must feel. That's how our affections must be governed. Truth will cause us to rejoice and to love. And thus, because at times they don't feel like it, then the worship is dispensed with. But here in this psalm, we see that worship is continued regardless of the feelings. Worship because that's the right thing to do. God is God. He is almighty. He is our creator. He is our savior. And we worship his name in light of that and then note lastly just the last thing to see and that is the praying that comes out of our worship remember I'll just say some of we'll close the Levites are here exhorted to worship God and as they reflect upon the Lord they in turn desire God's blessing on others that's what verse 3 is about the Lord bless thee we've been engaged in the worship of God we've been blessing God's name thinking about the Lord making much of the Lord and in turn, we then begin to desire God's blessing on others. Right worship produces within us a burden for God to bless others in the gospel. Out of right worship comes fervent prayer. Faith in God, the Lord that made heaven and earth. The foundation, it's out of Zion, the place of sacrifice. We worship God, we pray, believing that God made heaven and earth, and that God comes out of Zion, the place where sacrifice was made. And the focus of this prayer is of God's gracious blessing. The Lord graciously bless thee. And so if we are to worship aright, it ought to produce within us a burden for the well-being of those around us. That not only that we will be blessed of God, but that God in turn will bless others. And so the foundation of modern worship that I believe is so much about self is torn apart by a careful consideration of the word of God. The entertainment model that's going to the church that governs that what happens in church is about how I feel and what I do is so far removed from the word of God. Where worship is about God and through God to others. So may God help us to be wise, to be careful, not to be callous, not to be unfeeling to those who do want to worship God, but to ensure that our worship in this place and across our denomination is governed by the right principles. 
the glory of God in his church, the rule of God over his church, the grace of God through his church, and the presence of Christ in his church. May God indeed bless our hearts today. Let us close in word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you we live in days where there is still there is still a people, a remnant who desire to worship thy name in truth. Oh God, we meet today and we, we want your grace and your help to do it here. Help us, O oh Lord, to know your will. Bless our souls. Do us good in thy house. Help us to worship in a right manner. To give ourselves fully to the worship of thy name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.